Thanks for joining us again on the Image Podcast. I'm Paul Anderson. This week on our show, we'll be exploring two subjects which, at first glance, appear to have nothing in common. First, Gregory Wolf sits down with essayist Susan Antonetta to talk about how science, specifically neuroscience and astrophysics, can lead us towards both mystery and spiritual insight. Second, Image Managing Editor Mary Kanegi Mitchell and Greg discuss C.E. Morgan's new novel, Sport of Kings, a horse racing epic that some critics are calling the next great American novel. So what do the cosmos and horse breeding have to do with one another? What strikes me most profoundly in these conversations is how an attention to the complexity of our physical world, to things like the delicacy of a horse's leg after years of inbreeding, or the neuroreceptors in our stomachs and on our skin, can shed light on topics pertaining to religion, race, and our culture at large. On top of that, both of these topics are ones that somebody like me, a lifelong English major with a C-plus average in science classes, might typically keep at an arm's length. But Susan Antonetta's body of work is, on the whole, an invitation to reconsider the categories of thought that we often box ourselves into. Her book Body Toxic, which was a 2001 New York Times notable book, is a complex blend of personal memoir and environmental journalism set in the Pine Barrens of southern New Jersey. Here she is with Gregory Wolf on Whidbey Island. Here we are. In beautiful, sunny today, thank goodness, Whidbey Island, I'm here with Suzanne Antonetta. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. I was followed to the cabin by two beautiful bald eagles soaring just a little way over my head. Um, wonderful. That's wild. I They always stay so high up that it's a treat if they were anywhere lower down than they're nesting right now. I think their tree was probably very close by, and they may have been curious about us, or they may have been seeing some little rodents that will no longer be among us in a very short time, but they were quite low. It was pretty great. As I, as I mentioned in some other interviews we're doing here, uh, we're actually at uh, the Seattle Pacific University facility on Whidbey Island for the MFA programs residency, spring residency. So I have my eagle story is that I came, went out of the back of this house one day to get in my car to drive somewhere. And I startled an eagle who was sitting in a tree and he dropped what was in his claws, his talons, and it hit the ground with a thud. It was a rabbit. Oh my goodness. Deceased. Of course. And so I immediately froze and thought maybe it would come back, but it was very cautious. So I disappeared back in the house, and it didn't come back right away, but it was quite a moment. Uh, you had to be there, I guess. Did you look hungry, Greg? <laughs> you have lost a few well, pounds. It might yeah. have just thought Greg doesn't look like his old self. Didn't want, to, didn't want to go mano y mano about it. Here's a bedding for you. So you are teaching in the program in creative nonfiction. And there's always this question, we have to ask ourselves the same question when we put together a, a Glenn workshop, we, we talk about spiritual writing. Because mm -hmm. we use the phrase to mean nonfiction about some dimension of the religious, spiritual, transcendental universe, mm -hmm. and people can sometimes have very different expectations about what spiritual writing means. Your books cover a wide range of topics. You've written about the environment. You've written about neuroscience. You've written about adoption. Mm -hmm. um, you um, are interested in science, but you're also interested in faith. And I know a couple of these books have actually had the Library of Congress uh, categorization of spiritual books when the this title or the subject didn't even seem to be right. about that. Well, I mean, I think the fact that my books are ultimately spiritual books, to me, is screamingly obvious. I think to reviewers and readers, it never has been. And I think there is kind of that um, that sense that if God isn't in the title or the subtitle or something very close to God, the divine, the sacred, that that's not what you're doing. And I think that I want to take a step back and say that while I'm not describing my work as great literature by any means, uh, to me, any literature that reaches greatness, if I want to read again, is dealing with spirituality in some sense. And we are 
interior beings in whom the spiritual life is always predominant, even if you consider yourself an atheist. The only writers, I think, who've tried desperately to eliminate that aspect of work would be people like Elaine Robe-Gurley, who basically wrote a book about the Venetian blinds called Chalice. He was trying really hard to write a book with no imagery and no interiority and it was very avant-garde and people sort of said they liked it at the time, but I suspect it was one of those books that got talked about more than it got read and now it's considered just unreadable. Mm. So how do you separate a Shakespeare from spirituality? Uh, how do you separate, you know, any great work from the strivings and development of the human spirit. So I think it's kind of sad that we have that very limited, only a conversion narrative with God in the title is a spiritual book kind of a sense now. And I think I do cover a lot of ground in my books, and I think that's not in New York publishing a good thing. It drives people crazy that I didn't do a second environmental book or a second neurodiversity book. But to me, what's utterly fascinating what I keep coming back to is just the mysteries of consciousness and the mind and the fact that we have an interior life and what does it mean and right now I'm really enmeshed in the neuroscience of that which is quite interesting um, but to me that's ultimately a spiritual question well I can see that but at the same time wouldn't I mean wouldn't you say some of the cutting edge of neuroscience gives people almost an excuse to be atheist? I mean, it would seem that neuroscience would be like the ultimate explainer away of God mm. because the materiality of the brain explains why we might have these imaginations of there mm -hmm. being something mm -hmm. other than pure materiality. Sure, that's a great question. And the true answer, and um, you weren't here when I did my reading, but I addressed this a little bit in that reading. Right now, that idea that the brain is either, uh, that thinking, consciousness itself, can be explained through materialism, or they call it physicalism, meaning it's an emergent property of the things our brain does, right? We, you know, we send little electrical firings down the synapses, and we send out neurotransmitters, and somehow emergent means they all come together and they produce this inner voice. That really, that thinking really does not fly anymore. There are people who stick with it, but it has enormous problems. Um, and I don't want to get like so sciencey, people are going to now turn this off. But one simple one is what's called the binding problem. Um, you get all, I'm getting all this in, individual information about you, your red shirt, your glasses, your hair color, you that you're wearing jeans, and all these little different parts, of, and your voice, I hear your questions, all these different parts of my brain are going to be lighting up if I do a functional MRI, which is where you see that. Um, so the color centers are going to be tickled a little bit, the sound centers are going to be tickled a little bit. There's nothing in my brain that can put those together into a Greg. That is the ultimate question. Hmm. It can be called the qualia question or the binding problem. But there's no, there's no mechanism we can use to explain that. And a little kitten looking at you would get all that information but without seeing a Greg. They'd see a kitten version of Greg. We don't know what that would look like. Hmm. So um, actually, they're actually scrambling you know, tremendously and saying, well, there must be a quantum process going on in consciousness for this to happen, for all these things to bind and form a single unified voice. But we don't know. And to me, inhabiting those questions is just so fascinating as a writer. I just want to know more and more. Yeah. I mean, I love science, and I, I revere science, and I think people of faith all should. But once in a while, it sounds to me like they they sometimes are scrambling to make something up to avoid coming to a different conclusion that they don't want to come up with. They try desperately, and it's actually... <laughs> Which people of faith do, but yeah. I, I guess we are all susceptible to it, believers and non-believers. Well, and I think sometimes our little dance, our two-step, is to try to make things look neat. Mm. Um, that's what intelligent design is trying to do, is reconcile all these things that are, as of now, really irreconcilable. And I think... Scientists do that to an incredible extent. They even have a school of thought called instrumentalism, 
which they translate into lay terms as shut up and do the math, right? Because all the equations we're doing now with the universe are pointing to something beyond just what we can figure out. Um, there seems to be a larger kind of unification. There are these numerical coincidences called the cosmic coincidences. And if you work out the odds of these things happening, you get numbers like you know, 10 to the 40th power. Mm. shows up again and again in the universe. It makes no sense the way that it does. Um, it's actually a much more... It makes pi look like a really boring number, what 10 to the 40th power does. So without boring you with all the details of that, people like... The multiverse is, is kind of a way to answer that. Well, there's so many universes, there can be one with all yeah. these. They, they're called the cosmic coincidences. Right. Um, so, and I mean, there may well be a multiverse. There's good math that supports that, too. But um, It's tricky, though, when it's not yeah. experimentally verifiable, at least in no. the present. You have to take a multiverse on faith. It's absolutely in, unverifiable. In yeah, unless we get to some much greater capacity than we have now. So, um, so there have been people like Eugene Wigner, who was a Nobel laureate, so not a slouch, and I believe an atheist, as was um, Sir Hoyle, who was also a very great astronomer, who do say, uh, Wigman used the term cosmic consciousness, that there has to be, um, and Hoyle used the term a super intellect. There's a super intellect putting us together. It's, it's too perfect. Um, it's kind of like the Victorian watch if you pick up a watch, you know, it didn't just happen by chance. Somebody put it together. It's constructed. Um, and then Wigner finally got so much crap about, excuse my language, the cosmic collected, you know, the cosmic consciousness that he backed off from it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it raises, that raises the huge debates that have been raging lately about intelligent design, which mm -hmm. some people feel is like a God in the gaps kind of Right. You know, um, argument. Um, but let me ask you this. When you're writing, how do you... I mean, some of these ideas are intimidating and are definitely sure. above my pay grade. But how do you try to make them relatable? I mean, how do you humanize all this very sort of challenging mm -hmm. science? What's, what's important to you? What do you yeah. struggle with to try to bring it, make it live for the reader? Yeah, well, I think I start out in very concrete places. Um, and I can give a shout-out for a book of mine because it's free. Essay Press does these really cool digital books, and they're free. If you go to essaypress.org, you can download it. It's called Curious Atoms, and it's essays and memoir put together. And because it's free, I could use any NASA photos I wanted. Um, so it's, it's great. Um, I, the cover of it is this amazing Hubble photo that's called the smiley face and it's like the smiley face out in the universe it's actually some quasars i think and lensed light but i'm glad it wasn't the middle finger it's of, in hilarious. the universe but... it's like yeah you look far out into the universe with the best instrument you've got and you find bart simpson is what it feels like or forrest gump or forrest gump <laughs> exactly so i mean that's a place to see how i do it but i tend to build from sort of the personal out. So I have one essay that started with Tertullian's question about Athens and Jerusalem. And he asked, what, do, what does Athens have with Jerusalem? And his students started to come up with the answer that it has nothing to do with Jerusalem. But I started with that, and it became sort of this meditation on bipolar disorder. And then that really started drawing in these, these cosmic mysteries of dark matter and dark energy, these forces that most of the uniform most of the universe consists of that we don't yet understand and can't measure can't can't even right. see we can measure the gravitational force. we know that they exist but we These have are, no direct access to them we do not we know that it's we, we know dark something or dark energy or something like it exists because the universe is flying apart essentially too fast for yeah. um, any other model I mean it could be another force but there's something. So I was, you know, kind of that idea of mystery and the things that you don't know that are causing you to fly apart. So the science comes in later. In fact, I have a manuscript with me now, and I'm actually going through it, putting in, like, neat cosmic coincidences here. Um, but it's a family story, and um, in some ways a sad family story. 
So I think that it humanizes it simply that I, the story, the emotional stories are there first. Okay. And then I really want to understand, because my grandmother was a Christian scientist. She literally believed she had no body. She, you were very familiar with this faith, Greg. Yes, we've shared our stories about Christian science background. It's very strange. She believed that we are all only mind, that anything material is an illusion, and therefore you can't be sick. And ultimately they don't believe you die. You, your cosmic mind goes back to the great cosmic mind, but you don't die. It's kind of just a little translation. Um, and what it, so what do you do with that when, and I mean, she ended up in a very bad place and, um, we lost a lot of family property to Sandy, Hurricane Sandy. And so there's a lot of dissolution in the book, but, um, I was starting with the question of what do you do when quantum physics suddenly agrees with your grandmother, you know, and, and we're saying it's a mind first universe. That anything physical flows from math, flows from sort of intellectual places um, or non-material places. And that's a very heavy, overwhelming realization, but it's the only way right now we can make the universe make sense. Right. Well, that's the mystery of consciousness itself, is that we have, through evolution or whatever, whatever combination of creation, evolution, we have the capacity to um, we, we are the universe is intelligible to some extent that is mm-hmm. and so our minds are able to grasp what is outside of our minds at least what right. seems to be outside of our minds and that chiming that connection is very strange that that is. somehow is is the case and, uh, and it spawned a lot of these debates. It's very strange. We can't explain why that is, why we have that sense of a me, of an inner narrative. And I can remember being really obsessed with that as a little child. Yeah. So I think as a writer, I've just tried to answer questions I've had probably since I was six years old. And I can remember once, you know, I lived in an apartment in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and it was a very existential place. A lot of my neighbors were Holocaust survivors. Um, so I actually remember seeing tattoos. And, of course, nobody would tell a little kid what that was. I thought it was just something you did. You put numbers on your arm. Um, so there were refugees. I mean, certainly not a wealthy area. Um, and there's a huge cemetery across the street. It's actually, I've learned now, a very famous cemetery. I think Hart Crane is buried there. And it's enormous. But, you know, it was a kind of a rundown cemetery, and there was a little candy store down the street. And like I said, it was an existential place to live. There were a lot of these people who didn't have family. I didn't realize that it was because their family had been killed, but there was clearly something going on. And a cemetery across the street, and, and I just, I don't know if those things had anything to do with it, but I remember once going to this little candy store down the street with my dad, and just being overwhelmed with the puzzle of why I had any kind of interior voice like why is the whole universe currently in my head and do other people have this too and elizabeth bishop has a great poem called in the waiting room and i think she has the same epiphany but i think i've been chasing that question ever since Mm. so i guess that's what leads to these questions of cosmic consciousness which i guess maybe some of us maybe wouldn't be quite so fancy about it and just say God? Oh yeah, no. Um, Wigner, I think at times, would use the word God, although he would qualify it. And, and certainly lots of other people will as well, but they'll usually qualify it by saying, well, my God isn't what the Christians mean by God or what the Muslims mean by God. It's, it's kind of almost this just giant intelligent force or even a set of mathematical equations, potentially, I think. Mm. I don't know. Um, I have not yet gotten to the point with Summerland where I'm doing this, but when I'm late in the game, I'll do some interviews with physicists. So after those interviews, I may be able to say what they mean by that. But yes, I know. I think that it is deeply theological in an inescapable way. No, I mean, I think what what you do that's so interesting is that you've got a great balance of personal narrative, memoir elements, pretty dramatic 
sometimes pretty traumatic personal stories, but there is this, you know, you have just a curious mind about Mm -hmm. science, about, you know, the issues in which we live and move and have our being, the environment, Mm -hmm. our minds. Um, So somewhere along the line, you just got bitten by that bug. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it's, it's great because it, it, it offers a little bit of a leavening to just the hothouse of me, me, me all the time. Right. Relationships and my consciousness and my mind. There's a kind of objective correlative, as T.S. Eliot would say, for the interior stuff. Sure, sure. I know. And those are, it's always the larger questions that interest me. I do want to get to them with the particular. I mean, I have a great deal in my book about my grandmother's death. Where, I mean, aside from being a Christian scientist, she was very, very much a spiritualist. Someone who did seances um, all her life and took them really seriously, which is not unusual in someone coming out of her time period. But at the end of her life, she became very pursued by demons. She thought there were demons in the house. You'd, You'd see her get up and run across the room and slam a window. And she was getting the demons out or they were trying to come in and, um... And so the larger question there is, what do you do when you've kind of, you've staken out this intellectual territory about the mind and its perfection and that nothing can happen to you unless you allow it to be your own fault with this very ravaged kind of demon-possessed. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, it's... This is the kind of stuff that Harold Bloom would be love, love, love to death. I mean, he he's a self-conscious Gnostic who... You know, loves this titanic energy of American religion that's sort of, sort right. of you know, and, and I think there's something very deeply ingrained in, in the American tradition that loves the notion of the mind is superior, kind of Emerson plays sure. into to that and has a very difficult time understanding the body and right. flesh and the, the sort of limitations that we live under and because for them... Spirituality wow. means victory, conquering limitation. Absolutely. We were we, we win, America wins, mission accomplished. Yeah. And the body with all its frailty is scary and uncontrollable. Right. And we don't tend to like that as a people. No, we don't. It's absolutely true. And I think that is a thread in our literature. Um, where like in Jane Eyre, even though there were a lot of things that Charlotte Bronte couldn't do. Sort of the size of people's bodies, the feelings of their bodies, faintness, tremors. I mean, it was, the body is very present on the page where with um, William Dean Howells, for example. I know uh, one reviewer said, well, his women have no heads and his men have no bodies. I mean, the intellectual characters were just completely mind-driven, and that's really boring. Because um, our bodies are doing things to us. Our bodies, you know, we have this fascinating interior thing called consciousness this inner storyteller and our bodies are generating a lot of that i mean they're generating it through our endocrine system through our um, neurotransmitters they're generating it and you know the more we study the body the more we realize and this is a really fascinating thing to me because 20 years ago the metaphor would have been the mind was a computer and it was actually widely believed even in the ai community that people were basically downloadable like we could have Greg, Cyber Greg. Kurzweil and all that, the singularity, sure. that's still Absolutely. lingering around, but you think it's, it's a little passe now? Well, the research they've done is that like we have a whole brain in the gut. We have an enormous number of neurotransmitters lining our gut, and we actually have many on our skin. Um, so any Greg that completely reproduced your mind would be lacking an enormous amount of information and input that you're getting now from um, essentially learning that, you know, and it's not, it's a very historical thing to locate thinking in the brain. People have located it in the heart. They've located it in the liver. Most of it does happen in the brain, but it's way more decentralized than we used to think. You know, some of my favorite uh, 20th century thinkers like uh, the philosopher Jacques Maritain and uh, the novelist Walker Percy, they, they, they talked about the modern phenomenon of what they called angelism, bestialism. Right. Where these two aspects of our, of our makeup are, are kind of literally kind of torn apart. They are. Where we fall into this sort of abstract thinking on the one hand. Uh, Percy once joked that 
America's brain is in Harvard Yard and its balls are in 42nd Street. Right, right, right. Back in the day when they had porn on 42nd Street before it got cleaned. Oh, I knew that 42nd Street actually you and quite I knew well. It well yeah. yeah. So, I mean, would it be wrong to say that you're in your writing, you're trying to find a way to integrate, to yeah. bring bring the head and the heart back together? Absolutely. Body and spirit? Yeah, I have always, I mean, I th- and I think since my grandmother and my mother was raised as a Christian scientist, and I think retained some of it her whole life. In the same way, my grandmother, being a spiritualist, was a very bad one. I mean, Eddie didn't believe in that at all, so it was deeply sinful. And um, my grandmother would drink. She drank like a fish. Uh, she smoked opium at least twice that I know of. Um, she wasn't a good Christian scientist, except in her belief in the mind and right. the body. But I think having grown up with that and sort of seen the folly of it, the body's always been super important to me. And I think as a person with bipolar disorder, I'm aware that neurotransmitters are doing things to me that need to be corrected, that you know, the body is always... You can't separate the intellect from the body. I mean, and I think that's one of the reasons the brain and the gut is kind of an exciting discovery. I mean, I don't remember the number of neurotransmitters in the gut, but it's bill- I, I believe it's in the billions. And they're interacting not just with you know, they're sending signals up, but they're interacting with, you know, your, your GI system. They're interacting with the things that are happening in your body on the most, literally, gut level. Um, and, and so it's, you know, it's changing your perceptions of the world. You can't get out of that. Yeah. So we can't be reduced to a kind of calculating machine. There's just no. too... Everything is too concrete, too... Um, too multifarious in, in right. all this, you know, we're, we're made up all these different types of material and receptivity. Right. So, you know, the notion that we can be reduced to ones and zeros just seems to run up against the complexity of the body. Right. And I think that's why the brain is computer finally had to go out because it ignores what um, a person I know in AI who's very well known, Kate Hales, called the wetware. <laughs> But, um, and when she said it, she was talking about the wetware in the brain, but now it's the wetware all over. Um, that's, but at the same time, I mean, this is, it's such a stupendous creation. The body is such a stupendous creation. The world, the bald eagles, it's fallen. There's ugliness. There are places where people are suffering terribly and we need to get in there and try to change that. But it's a stupendous creation. And the more we learn, I think, the more stupendous it is. I mean, I think that's why you see people like Fred Hoyle, Sir Fred Hoyle, who's a brilliant astronomer in the 20th century, who is, was an absolute confirmed atheist, but still using the term super intellect with this awe. This awe. Right. And if he wants to not label that something, or, you know, somebody else wants to not label it something, that's fine. Um, but I think if we're not seeing that awe of what really is, we're missing a huge amount that we're here, we're created to perceive. We're created to be such receptors. Well, and each of your books really is is focused on how this recognition of our of the kind of fearfully and wonderfully made creation needs love, needs compassion. I mean, there's the book, as we said at the beginning, the environment yeah. and the 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 mental environment right. um, in your book on neuroscience and the family environment in, in your book sure. on adoption. So, so these things can't be reduced to kind of sociological formula. There, there's the need, there's this irreducible need of love and compassion that mm-hmm. presumably gets you back into spiritual territory. Again. It absolutely does. And I think it's, I just think it's, it's, I think in the same way that you're impoverishing yourself if you believe that Earth was created 6,000 years ago, and you see that as a stronger faith position than the amazing thing that was created. Um, and if you're not looking at like what we know now about time, and it's in, many, in, in most senses, really, it's, it's complete unreality. And you think you're apprehending God. I don't see... I think you're impoverishing yourself. Um... And I think by the same token, the idea that you have to write about the environment and keep referring back back to something like a biblical passage on stewardship, for it to be a spiritual stance, is equally impoverished. Um, 
I mean, I, I sort of, I'm, I'm glad I live now because what we're learning fascinates me, but in some ways I wish we lived in an age where we did a lot less of that literary compartmentalization. Right. I think it's terribly unhealthy. Well, your work is modeling what that looks like. Thank and you. We really appreciate it and hope to continue to publish it in Image and and have you teach next generation here at the MFA program. Yeah. So thanks for joining us, Suzanne, and bringing those low-flying eagles with you and talking about these amazing, mind-blowing topics. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about something else again soon. Thank you. Thanks for asking me to do this. It's a pleasure. You got it. Thanks to Susan Antonetta for joining us. Here's Mary Kanegi Mitchell and Greg Wolf talking about C.E. Morgan's novel, Sport of Kings. Well, here we are, ready to talk to each other about C.E. Morgan's new novel, The Sport of Kings. Welcome to the podcast, Mary Kanegi Mitchell. Hi, it's nice to be here. I'm excited to talk about this book. I have to thank you for the recommendation. You were the one who had pointed it out to me. Somewhere along the line, I'd heard about her first novel, All the Living, and it was it's on the queue. It still is on the queue. So I have to confess that I, I haven't read that one yet, but it got a lot of critical attention, and it seemed to be you know the an auspicious debut for a new writer. And then came The Sport of Kings, which clearly generated a lot more buzz. It seemed to be a bigger, bigger, more ambitious kind of canvas that she was working on. And I think that's the thing that struck me the most about it, was really just, this is a a book that's ambitious in a sort of old-fashioned sort of way. Do you feel the same way? Mm, I agree. Yeah, I. what made me want to read it was uh, reading a review in The New Yorker by Katherine Schultz, um, reading that this is a book about horse racing, race, the history of Kentucky and Ohio, um, the sprawling cast of characters, um, made me want to check it out. I was a huge fan of Jane Smiley's Horse Heaven, which was also about horses, um, but this is a completely different book, um, and and yeah, a very ambitious book. Um, she's taking on um, she's taking on a lot of subjects, but race primarily, and the way that it threads through American history. And I think what I admire most about how she executes that is she treats this multifaceted complex problem by writing a book that's written in a ton of different registers. So there are passages that are realism, there's mythology, there are passages that are just crazily lyrical, um, there's language that, you know, words you have to look up in the dictionary on every page, um, and so many voices in the novel. And I, I think that sort of provides a fruitful way of looking at the subject she's trying to write about. Yeah, I mean, it only just occurred to me, but there's sort of a, almost a Moby Dick element to this mm -hmm. book because it sort of works similarly. You, As with Moby Dick, you've got the this movement back and forth between dramatic narrative writing and then these kind of factual sections that are um, seemingly kind of uh, just intellectual information of various kinds. Um, and yet, and yet, they somehow combine into some kind of larger uh, symphony of approaches. So as you say, I think um, these are interludes in the book, and those interludes uh, are partly focused on scientific things. Um, some of them are about horses. Some of them are about evolution. Some of them are historical in nature, like this sort of beautiful opening sequence where you have these pioneers kind of coming over the mountains and just coming through the virgin landscape to find this plot of land in northern Kentucky that's sort of beautiful and oriented towards the Ohio River and all of that. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Race is, is central to the book and the most important thing. I don't think it detracts from that, though, to say that she wants all of these different elements to, to kind of flank that theme. And because they all, in certain ways, reflect on uh, our sense of identity and our sense of belonging, of loyalty, of relationship to another. Mm. Yeah, um, 
I too really admired the passages to do with um, landscape and geology. Um, she's, it's clear that there's sort of all these lifelong passionate interests of hers, geology, history, social history, um, that go into the book. Um, the way she writes about the geology of the Ohio River Valley, the soil composition and how that influences the landscape, the stone, the, the limestone, karsty stones that then are, um, are used to build the fences for these horse farms and then the sort of historical controversy over who are we going to agree built these fences? Are we going to say it was Irish immigrants? Or are we going to say that they were built by slaves? Um, and the way that she gets each of those threads to interweave. Um, you mentioned... Moby Dick, and I think she's, I think she's pretty conscious, I mean, she's trying to write the, another great American novel here, and I think she's pretty con, uh, pretty, I think she's aware of Melville as an antecedent there, um, in particular, there's an, there's an early interlude session, section where she talks about the biology of what makes, a, what makes a horse's coat white, and there's a section where she writes about the whiteness of white horses that kind of makes you think of what Melville and the whiteness of the whale. She describes all the other colors of horses first, and then she writes, but then there is white. White is less a color than a superimposition. It is a pigmentless pattern, a roan or gray intrusion upon all the hard colors and their various configurations. A white is the only horse without pigment, even though the white horse has dark eyes, W-H-W. White serves to mask color, though color lives forever in the genes. Therefore, a white horse, or what seems a white horse, is capable of great reproductive surprises. And, of course, horse breeding is one of the sort of continuing obsessions of the book. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that it's a fundamental metaphor to... It's paralleling the human level at a variety of uh, registers and levels. I think... Um, most obviously in the whole concept of breeding thoroughbreds. So um, I really knew very little about this. I, I can tell you I've probably watched one or two Kentucky Derbies in my life, only to, you know, feel like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but, you know, it's a lot of horses running very fast and it's over very quickly. And I never felt particularly close to it, of course, until I read this book that suddenly kind of brought it alive to me because I saw all this context. So... You know, this question of how do you breed an, uh, a thoroughbred, there's a kind of dark side to that. I yes. don't know if you recall that, but mm -hmm. do you want to talk about that at all? Or um, Sure. So there's this, sort of, there's this sort of temptation scene where this, well, okay, so, the, so among the main characters of the book are this sort of old money Kentucky um, country gentleman who, um, defying his father, converts his farm from corn to horses, and um, he's obsessed with breeding the next secretariat, and a trainer comes up to him after he loses a race and says, um, he says, you know, other people are trying to, other people are, everyone wants to breed the next secretariat, but there's a failure of nerve here, because, um, you know, if you want the big heart, the 22-pound heart of Secretariat that wins races, um, that comes down through the female line. You have to breed the line to the line. You can't, you, you bring in these, you try to bring in these other horses, you're just diluting what's good. You've got to go for, for the purity. Um, and he decides to, so the, so and the breeders, the breeders persuaded, and so they they continue what's already sort of a pattern of inbreeding in thoroughbred horses, where all thoroughbreds are descended from about six different famous horses who lived centuries ago, um, and they take it a step further. But with that comes their the fragility, and she, and she writes so beautifully about all animals, but especially horses, um, and this sense of this incredible strength, this explosive strength, but also this fragility in the legs, like that they have um, huge hearts, um, and, and they have these delicate legs, and they're, criti they're critical moments in the novel, um, including one scene that just will slay you of an accident at the horse track. Um, that uh, everything coming from these thin legs that are um, that are sort of the downside of the um, of the in the inbreeding, right? Um, 
And when you and when you use the word inbreeding, there's it's a somewhat delicate term. I mean, frankly, I would say the kind of darker hint um, in this is almost a kind of incestuousness. Well, not almost. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Directly. So I'm being I'm being uh, delicate myself, and I think that's clearly where you have the intersection with the issue of race mm. and with, I mean. The book starts off and you have every reason to believe in something of the nobility and courage and persistence of these white settlers because they came, there was nothing but forest, they transformed it against the odds. And of course, that beauty though is sort of offset by the sort of obsessiveness about holding holding what we have. We, we, we got it out of nothing. It's ours, we have to hold it. And then, of course, there's the parallel question of how did you wrest it from the world? You didn't do it all by yourself. And so this theme of, of whiteness and of, of incestuousness and, frankly, sexuality sort of pervades the book and leads to some of the more dramatic elements, which we won't go into for fear of spoilers. But, um, you know, we're, you were rightly raising a little bit of the narrative itself. We've spoken about this somewhat abstractly. Maybe it's time to shift a little bit and talk about some of the characters. I think one of the more interesting things about the book is, in a way, it, it's a book that it, it, it sinks you into a character who you think is going to be sort of the protagonist, and then it shifts, and then it introduces somebody else who feels like, oh, maybe this is the protagonist. How does that... I mean, that seems like a risky procedure in a way, since a lot of what readers love most about narrative fiction is feeling like you're rooting for somebody against the odds. Yeah, she loves to do this move where um, she reaches kind of a climactic dramatic moment for a particular character, often kind of with a line of dialogue, and then stops the story, and then you jump to another character. Um, it's a risky move, certainly. I... I actually, so I read this book last summer, and then in preparation to do this, I read bits of it. Um, I feel like I understood her strategy a little bit better the second time, and I think, um, I think often, you know, she she takes a character as far as she can, and then you've and then you've got a question, and then the way she answers the question isn't by taking that character further; it's by it's with a new character. So, um, you know, we start with this obsessive Ahab-like father who wants to breed the perfect horse. John Henry. John Henry. And his name is probably not entirely by happenstance either. Yeah. Um, and then um, in the second section of the book, well, yeah, and the there are interludes too. Just, but the second major section of the book, we move to his daughter who, you know, he's the... He's the overt, deliberate racist who will just say, um, who will, you know, racist pseudoscience. Um, he's, 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 there's nothing hidden about it. Um, his daughter is, you know, in, in some ways different from him, but still she's, you know, very much the product of this family. Um, she, and this, this bizarre life that she lives as a very privileged daughter of a horse-raising family. Um, the first line of the book is how far from your father can you run, uh, which is said uh, with respect to John Henry running from his father, Henry. Um, Actually, it's the other way around. It's, oh. it's my bad. John Henry is the corn farmer. He is the kind of really old-fashioned patriarch. And then his son is Henry. He's the one who changes it against his father's wishes to the thoroughbreds. And then his daughter is Henrietta. So again, you can see here there's kind of an incestuousness of names. Carry on. Yeah. Um, so we follow Henrietta in, in the second section. And um, like you'd expect, there's a little bit of disappointment from these men when they get a daughter. But at least you can name her Henrietta. Um, and then the same with the horses. They want, you know, they want a triple crown winner, which means a colt. They get a filly. Um, the sire dies. The filly is their last chance. Um, and so there's sort of parallels between Henrietta and then this, this three generations of fillies. 
um, that are that they're trying to breed out of Secretariat's line. Anyway, you follow Henrietta in the second section. Um, she's straining and straining to get away from her father, um, mostly um, mostly through sex, um, and then that section that section ends kind of abruptly at the moment she almost on a whim hires a groom to work on the farm. Her father's away. He leaves the decision to her. She's his manager. And she decides to hire a young man who's a graduate of a horse training program at a penitentiary. Um, and the scene ends. There's an interlude. And then we move to the major middle section of the book, which is about Almond Shaughnessy, who his... Um, his forefathers are from Kentucky, from the same area of Kentucky in which the Forges, that's Henry and Henrietta, the Forges farm is, but he grew up in Cincinnati, which was the destination for slaves escaping across the Ohio River um, in, uh, in, the, in a tough neighborhood in the, north part of, in the north part of Cincinnati. His father is white, Irish, um, his mother is black. His grandfather is a preacher, a really interesting character, and a pillar of the local community who we can talk about more in a little bit. Um, but those three characters, Henry, Henrietta, and Alman, um, are, are sort of the main arc of the novel is them. But then the minor characters are actually some of the most interesting, the reverend and the jockey and the veterinarian and the cook and... Um, there's it's a it's a big cast. Yeah, and I, I think what interests me, as I said, is the way that as a reader, your your emotional involvement in the story is kind of constantly shifting. Yeah, and it's shifting in a way that's it's done so well that it's not disorienting shifting, but it is somewhat emotionally disorienting in the sense of. So the beginning is this corn farmer, John Henry, the old-fashioned guy who wants his son to read Greek and all of that, kind of hearkening back to sort of the founding father generation. And he's a tyrant. And so you're, you're rooting for this young guy, Henry, because he wants, you know, he falls in love with horses. He, he, horses for him are a thing of beauty. And you sense that there's something good there. Um, and then, of course, the father... Uh, opposes his desire and there's a terrible conflict but then the, when the section where Henry is a grown man comes up you realize you know what he's kind of a tyrant too <laughs> he didn't run all that far from his father <laughs> he didn't run all that far from his father his tyrant his tyranny is over his farm and and the kind of implicit racism involved in that and so Henrietta his daughter as you say she's trying to run away from him and she runs away through sex in a way that um, it makes it hard to root for her in a way. I mean, she's so promiscuous. And yet, and yet, and yet, when you, and you sort of go through a lot of these different episodes, you realize that she's, for her, sex is a way of trying to get to know some other. Mm. She's constantly hungering yeah. for, she's trying to escape herself, mm. and she's trying to escape through, in a sense, who are you? And I guess that's a classic reason, you know, to have sex, is to try to find intimacy, to try well, to... And her father has told her this damaging thing because of his belief in sort of the blood purity of their family, which is that you are not like other people. He, he says of his daughter, her spirit doesn't rhyme with that of lesser animals. Um, and he gives her this long lecture on how she'll never really be able to connect with other people. And so her, like, her manner of rebellion is to, is to go out and try to connect and she does make one connection um, in this amazing scene that takes you back to that that Cumberland Gap um, that her the four the forebears first came through from. They were old Virginia planters, and they came through um, these rocky hills in the Cumberland Gap area. And um, she meets this man who is part of the Melungian population, the um, blended. Um, escaped slaves, Native Americans, and poor whites who lived in that area. Um, and she, she, it says he's the only friend she ever made. And she's wet, you know, he starts out as just one of the random men that she sleeps with. Um, but she actually feels kind of a heart connection there for the first time. Um, and then she realizes where she is. Um, 
she's, I think she sort of ended up drunk at his house and then she goes out walking and she realizes that it's the Cumberland Gap, which has this huge mythological significance for her family story. We own this land because we were the first one through the Cumberland Gap. Right. And then, as you said, the, the really large central section of the book, kind of the gravitational center in some way of the book, is this story of Alman Shaughnessy. Mm-hmm. Um, as you said, his father's white, but his father's white in the sense that he's in a drunk Irish, you know, absconding father who leaves the mother. And a hundred years ago, Irish didn't mean white. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so you get a kind of um, well-known story of uh, a black boy being raised by his mother in the inner city of Cincinnati where things are rough. But the writing is so, I don't know, grounded Mm -hmm. and powerful. You know, she works with some classic elements, drug gangs and so on, but they they never become mere conventions or it never kind of falls into a kind of, you know, a sort of a ripoff of pop culture, it, it always sort of dances away from those expectations. And then you meet some of these other characters, including this preacher grandfather of his, um, who is really a powerful figure. Yeah. I, I found him yeah. really in some ways sort of like the spiritual heart of the of the book. Not just because, I mean, he's not the only character who has wisdom. There are, I would say there are probably three or four characters in the book who seem to have a kind of inner life that that is closer to the truth about human existence than than this line of forges, but he's definitely central to it. And and you know, in and again, in a classic mode of of African American spirituality. But what what did you take from him? I mean, what were some of the things about his? his presence in the book that struck you. Mm. Yeah, and there are a handful of religious characters. They're always kind of at the fringes, seen from a a little bit of distance. Um, But he's the, of all the religious characters, he's the one who gets to speak the most, who gets to be the most articulate, because he's um, the, Alman Shaughnessy's father turns out to be a deadbeat who abandons the family, and so the reverend is is the father figure for Almond and spends time with him, and they go on this walk through Cincinnati where they talk. Um, I I read those scenes twice. Um, The first time I read them, I was captivated by um, sort of the way that the reverend addresses the problem of theodicy, of why God allows injustice and pain in a particularly American context, um, since he's talking about the injustice and the pain suffered by um, generations of African Americans. Um, And he talks about um, justice as another name for Jesus, and that, but that there's no perfect thing in this world. And you know, God has put it into our hearts to long for this perfection, but the only way we know it is by the lack. Um, and, but what I was struck by reading it the second time was he says these things to his grandson at a moment where he's able to, we don't go into his point of view, but it's clear from how this scene is written. He has perceived how much this boy is longing for his father. Um, and so he says these things about God to his grandson kind of very perceptively at a moment where he's trying to, um, where he's trying to, he's trying to answer a, a grief and a need that he sees in the boy. And that's actually something that I missed the first time I read it because I was like, ooh, the, theo- the theological part. And I started, you know, picking that apart. But the second time I read it, I realized um, it's actually as much personal as theological. And it, I think that's an example of, of her skill and talent. Right. And Almond, Almond is a very powerful character in his own right. And, um, you know, she writes the story in, in a way that's very deeply conflicting um, for any white reader, certainly, who reads it. Because, yeah. you know, you as a white person you read this book and you, you know your your own defensiveness will occasionally come up as you're trying to weigh these different things and what kind of level of guilt you have um, but the book has a way of kind of disarming all of those defense mechanisms that you have when you read the book and presenting you with real struggles real conflicts real catch-22s that the african-american characters find themselves in which don't have a trace of sentimentality 
um, but are just deep, deep, convicting passages. And it's, it, you know, you can't simply um, write off the character of Almond because, you know, he's a, he's a cliche of the angry black man. I mean, this anger is rooted in, in so much concrete, dramatic reality, the way his mother's illness is not attended to, her inability to get insurance, um, things that we, you know, we, we kind of are aware of in the periphery of our minds and the history of, of America's race relations, but she just takes you right into every last ramification of these things in ways that are absorbing and really dread-inducing. And, and, and I, I haven't read writing this powerful, I think, in a long time. Yeah. Yeah, so much hinges on Almond's mother's employer cutting her down from 40 hours to 35 hours. Um, and it's, she works in a dentist's office, and the dentist is sort of a well-meaning, like, reasonably progressive, like, re- thinks of himself as progressive because he's, he's employed this woman, but um, when she loses her insurance, um, things fall apart for the family. Um, there's a, a scene where she's with a doctor who says, you know, the, the treatment for lupus, the disease she has, um, it, ha- it hasn't changed much. We're working with an old script because, um, and he says, it's, it's mostly women of color who get this disease and therefore the research dollars don't pour into lupus the way they pour into some other diseases. Um, so it's a book that takes you from sort of the... Um, the personal racism of a, of a character like Henry Forge, but also through um, the institutional forms and, um, and through characters that I found really compelling. It's interesting, Henrietta, I found hard to connect with, I think, because she's so aloof and strange and mysterious. Um, the, characters in, the characters in the Cincinnati sections, Alman and his mother Marie, and the Reverend, um, I think there's there there is more connection. There is more connection there. Yeah, for sure. And um, Alman, um, you know, he struggles with this whole phenomenon of being on the outside looking in, and he wants to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's only natural, and and so part of his his way of behaving is. Um, ironically, and this is where I think the book does very much uh, abjure any any sentimentality, is that in a sense, precisely because of the sins of the forges, he is constantly tempted to say, well, I want, to, I want what they have. And so he's, I mean, and in a way you could say, well, that's downplaying his character, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's further showing that this this order of things that the white population has historically set up is so much, is so dominant in, in the sensibility of everyone around them that, that it, it sort of, it, it, there seems to be the only way to go. And so then there's characters that we, and, and dramatic elements where we probably can't go too much in a way, again, there's a classic race scene, um, a racing section at the end where you think it's going to be like Sea Biscuit or, you know, something like that. And there's the you know question of the fragility of this filly, and so on. But but Almond, of course, is wants justice, and wants a share of the good things of life. And so he's a character that has this tragic. I think this absolutely profound, tragic dimension in a way that no one else in the novel quite has. I mean, mm-hmm. one feels there's pathos to the Forges because they have, I mean, even Henry in his old age, there's a plot element where his humanity begins to come out a little bit and he softens and he begins to to detach from all the things that he's kind of gripped his whole life. And Henrietta, I agree, she's, she's hard, she's mysterious, but then you look... You think you read her notebooks, and she's been thinking and reading all these intellectuals and scholars, and there's this mysterious attempt on her part to break free. And then Allman is this character who is just caught in between. And I think for him, there's 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 the tragedy. He's a great man. He's a, he's he's great with horses. He's he is in some ways the true American hero, one who's close to nature, um, who understands 
the, the kind of unspoken, mysterious language of, of being true to nature and not the artifice of human civilization and human law and, and the structures of history that are, to some extent, arbitrary. And yet, what chance does he have to actually get what he wants? I mean, you want him to get it, and you don't want him to get it, and sort of the book kind of ends up careening towards this you know, dark but sort of inevitable place. Can we talk about this in a way that, as we wrap up here, that that's uh, mindful of readers' uh, experience and doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't give away too much? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's a. I I think it. I th- how can I? We want the best for Almond, and he and he deserves it. Um, but I think. You know, Morgan's instinct is that that would be that wouldn't be the truth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, that makes it, I think, as powerful as it is because it it really it because then that forces you as a reader back on what did you really expect? Mm-hmm. Did you think that Almond was going to end up being a, a gentleman farmer? Um, what was that going to involve? Um, Anyway, as we wrap up, I, I don't know, there's so many th- other things that I would love to talk about. I'd love to talk about the, the sheer linguistic elan of this book, you know, that's the rhetorical mm. um, yeah. power. I mean, at times uh, she writes in pure uh, dramatic dialogue just with, you know, there's the name of the character, there's dialogue uh, sections, there's sections that are written in pure prose poetry, um, and then there are these minor characters who, um, the jockey who is sort of um, a kind of prophetic, comic, um, worldly wise figure, kind of a Theresius-like figure in a way. Yeah. He, he reminds me of Anthony Blanche in, uh, in yeah. Brideshead Revisited. Yeah. He's kind of an a, a androgynous figure who bears history and the knowledge of it, knowledge that Alman doesn't have in which he's trying to impart to Allman in ways that um, will help Allman. But I don't know. What else can we say about this fantastic book? Yeah, I mean, I guess sort of two final thoughts. Um, one is there's, um, I think you, there's this repeated pattern of these doomed relationships between, um, between a black person and a white person, kind of one in each generation. Um, and in each case, it brings nothing but disaster on one or both. Um, and I think, um, I think that's sort of like reflective of a, of a bigger longing for connection, for healing. Um, the author, C.E. Morgan, um, gives a great interview in Commonweal and she talks about the question of, um, being a white writer, writing, um, writing black characters. And she says, you know, she, she defends her right to attempt that and she says um she thinks it's it's dangerous to make race a category that's so special that um that there's no hope of you know there's no hope of of uh, connection across it and she says um the project of the novel as a form is the is the sort of founded on the belief that we can connect with the other um my uh, my last thought about the book is um, I it has something that I associate with books from childhood and the end papers, which is that the end papers are maps, um, one of the Ohio River Valley and the bluegrass region, and then an inset of um, Cincinnati and its neighborhoods. And uh, among the many things to love about this book um, is her clear sort of love of landscape um, and how landscape shapes the lives of the people who live there. C.E. Morgan is from Kentucky. It sounds like she's, there's not a lot out there about her life, but it sounds like she spent part of her life in um, the neighborhood of Northside in Cincinnati. And so this is a landscape that she's been meditating on her whole life um, and a landscape whose history she's clearly um, sought out and learned a lot about, and um, and it, it shows throughout the book. 
Yeah, that Commonweal interview is amazing. I would I would urge our listeners to Google that Commonweal magazine, The Sport of Kings. Um, that'll get you to it. Um, this is a young writer who speaks with a kind of authority mm, um, yeah. and confidence. a kind of a confidence. Yes, but I mean. She backs it up. I mean, each of these sentences has a kind of gravitas to it that is is really, um, it can't be dismissed. I mean, and that and you, I don't, you know, whether this is the great American novel or not, it is a great American novel. I think, in in my opinion, and and it only makes me all the more eager to see where she wants to go from here. I I know that you know, informing her life or many influences, she actually did a graduate degree at Harvard Divinity School. And she says in the Commonweal interview that, you know, religion is definitely very much part of her larger sensibility. So I do believe that's fundamental to her vision and to this book, although, again, woven in with exquisite grace and subtlety and respect. Um, So, Mary, thanks so much for talking about the book with us. I hope all our listeners will go out and get a copy as soon as possible. I hope so, too. It's it's been fun to talk. All right. Let's do this again sometime. All right. Bye now. Once again, if you like what you've heard here on this show or what you've read in our journal, on our website, or in our weekly newsletter, please consider supporting us during our summer appeal. Go to imagejournal.org donate to make a donation. Thanks again for joining us on the Image Podcast. We'll see you next time.